I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to... Critique the hell out of culture. Yes, we are. Seth, you were quick on that one. We're here to critique the hell out of culture. How are you today, buddy? I'm doing well. I'm pretty excited. Some people that I uh, know and care about are going to talk to me about the Bible and Jesus. Oh, wow. I wonder who those are. <laughs> I Someone know who, else coming? We know who one of them is, but we have special guest here today. We do have a special guest. You teased a couple of weeks ago that we had a special guest. And people, I mean, I've just been getting email after email after email. Who could it be? Don't tell me, but you're having the one, the only. The one and the only Matt Brazelton is here oh on the couch. The real Matt Brazelton. The real Matty B himself. Matthew Brazelton, everybody. Woohoo! They say they're my friends, but they don't even know my name. <clears throat> what is Matt Brazelton? What's your role here, Matt? Oh my gosh, you are <laughs> killing me, Simmons. <laughs> my name's Matthew. Do you say it like that? <laughs> no. Hi, I'm Matthew. <laughs> I'm Matthew. I'm Luke. You. Seth. You. Oh goodness. So, Matthew. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, buddy. Thanks. Matthew Brazelton, everyone. He is, uh, man, you do a lot of stuff here at Redemption Gateway. Uh, tell some folks, give us a quick snapshot. What's, what's your role yeah, here? Yeah, I get to lead our operations team, which is uh, facilities administration finance, that team. And then I'm also part of our worship team, which is a lot of fun. That's a very confusing thing for most people to be kind of analytic and creative and artistic. That's I should have said analytic and artistic because two A's that would have gone better together. But yeah. man, we're glad you're here. And um, rumor has it you've mastered theology and have <laughs> a certificate to prove it. Is that correct? The same certificate you have. Well, so to whatever degree you have mastered it, maybe I'm a few well, notches behind. Well, it's not all theology. You've only mastered missional theology. Missional theology. Yes. yes. Whereas Seth, everybody has mastered divinity. Divinity. Yeah. Holy smokers. Yeah. That's incredible. Which that is, is pretty great. much bigger of a deal. Than, His than, piece of paper was more expensive than ours. Substantially. What that means. But, uh, so, Seth, why is Matthew here today? Matthew's here today because we wanted Matthew to be here today. <laughs> we don't really know. Matthew really likes this podcast and managed to somehow get himself in the room. <laughs> yeah, apparently, if you're a faithful listener and you uh, just ask enough times, what do they say, the squeaky wheel, you know, gets the grease? Yeah, he really only asked twice. Story of my life. Yeah. But Matthew, Matthew's reflective. He thinks deeply, and I think he feels all the right tension, if that makes sense. Yeah. I do think that we've talked about it, it, early in the podcast about the temptations of both fundamentalism and liberalism and how if you don't feel uh, the tension between those things and the temptation to have an ability to be taught, to learn, to be open, to be receptive— if you don't have any of that, you'll kind of land in some fundamentalist, can't be taught, already have it all figured out place. Yeah. And if you don't feel the authority and responsibility to submit to scripture, you land in some type of liberal theological place. Mm. And Matthew feels that tension and, and uh, in a pretty acute way personally. And I think that it's helpful for people to see and experience some of that. Yeah, man. So we're glad you're here. Great. Today's you. topic is get the hell off earth. Get the hell off earth. It and we're sure talking is. about hell a lot because what we're always saying in this is that there's all these hellish uh, things that are in our culture, that are in our society, and really they're there because they're in our hearts. Uh, this isn't just kind of a rant on what's wrong out there, but often a reflection of what's wrong in here. 
And uh, one of the really just misguided ways that a lot of Christians think is that the point of everything is to eventually just get the hell off earth. And what I'm excited about for today is I feel like, I feel like this conversation and and what we're going to push into is something that interestingly feels kind of new to a lot of people who've grown up in kind of our, you know, stream of evangelicalism, but it's not new at all in the history of the Reformed tradition. Um, And I find that when people really get this, it kind of brings a whole new level of meaning, especially to the mundane and the ordinary. And it gives a whole, I think, just much better vision for a future hope. And so I, I think this is in a way kind of, kind of a distinctive of Redemption Church. And yet there's, it's not like it's a distinctive throughout history. It's just maybe a, a little bit of a distinctive in terms of how people think about the future and think about you know the, the theological word eschatology. Um, so that's kind of what we're getting into is, is, the, is the hope of the world that we will someday get the hell off earth. Yeah, and that's, in that sense, we've spent a lot of time, you talk about critiquing the hell out of culture, and a lot of times I use the word culture to be those people out there outside of the church. But in this particular podcast, we're probably going to critique more about the culture within the church. Is this a let's get the hell out of here situation when the going gets tough, the tough get out of here? Yeah. Uh, but we want to ask the question, how does God get the hell off earth? Yeah. You know, if there's hell on earth, uh, and one of the promises is that heaven will come back to earth when Jesus comes back. You know, I saw the new city Jerusalem coming down. Uh, how do we do that? And so how's God going to deal with the fact that there are hellish things on earth and what's the plan there? Yeah, it's interesting, just even the kind of double meaning of the phrase, right? If we say, is the point of our future that we are going to get the hell off earth? The answer would be no. Would you go, is the point of the future that God is going to get the hell off of and out of the earth? Then we'd go, absolutely yes. And so it's a fun, even kind of way to, to begin to talk about it. So so like a lot of things, if we're going to talk about the end, it might be helpful to start in talking about the beginning. And there really is a strong relationship, Seth, between creation and our ultimate future. So will you talk about that? Yeah, when we think about the way creation is set up, one of the things that's really important is the parallels between the way that God designs the temple in the Pentateuch and the way that God designs creation in the opening scene of Genesis mm-hmm. is that uh, there's a similar cadence, a similar progression And there's a real parallel that a lot of different scholars have um, articulated that God is kind of setting himself up as uh, the temple builder. And if you go and read and study the the various ways that creation is built, God is creating a dwelling place for himself. The dwelling place of God is, is earth. And so he's creating. So if a temple is a place where God dwells, where God's presence especially is. So we can talk about God's presence in two senses. One, his a universal presence, the sense in which he's omnipresent. In that sense, God is always everywhere. Mm-hmm. But if you talk about his blessed presence, which is like the place in which he, we can experience him as a person, um, not just as a, a being, a personless being, uh, the temple is a place where God dwelt. And so the way that God creates Genesis 1 and 2 is he's simultaneously preparing a home for humanity who would serve as priest and he's preparing creation as a temple. And so God creates Adam to serve as the priest. Even Adam's task to serve and keep the garden in Genesis 1 is the same language of the task that God gives the priests of temples there to serve and keep the temple. And so the Adam as priest of the temple metaphor we get in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, you can't really get that if you just read Genesis 1 and 2 sure. until you read later and you see the way that God sets up temple stuff um, that... But, 
Moses wrote them both purposefully. And so there's a parallel between temple as God's dwelling place and creation as God's dwelling place. So is is God in the Garden of Eden trying to foreshadow the temple or is the temple trying to kind of reimagine or not reimagine, but kind of re um, articulate the Garden of Eden? Or are they both pointing to the end? That's a great question. I can only answer one question at a time. So, <laughs> so, so my view of this is God creates the earth as a temple, that when heaven overlaps with earth, that is a temple. And so God is saying, the earth is my dwelling place. And humanity is here to mediate between me and creation. I give them tasks there to develop, spread my image over the earth. And then when sin enters the world, actually, uh, there's a rupture between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth are divorced, separated, because uh, God cannot dwell with sin and with brokenness. And so there's a sense in which God's blessed presence withdraws from the earth. And Adam, the priest, is kicked out of Eden, out of paradise. And so another way to translate Eden would be paradise. And so um, because God isn't there, it's no longer paradise, and Adam can't be there anymore. And so when God is setting up a temple in, in later on in the, book of the books of the Pentateuch, He's doing really two things. He's saying, I have not given up on my presence on earth. I want to create a space that is holy, that's sanctified, that is set apart for me to dwell. And I'm going to keep using these broken, sinful humans to do it. But like we talked about in our previous episode, the only way that you can get close to God is, uh, is through uh, the life that's in the blood and there's no forgiveness, not shedding of blood. And so if, if the, if there's a purification of sin, then you can enter the Holy of Holies temple. And so it's both echoing back. God has not abandoned his creation. And it's uh, uh, looking forward to uh, this promise that happens again and again in the Old Testament that the dwelling place of God is with man, will be with man. I will be their God. They will be my people. And so there's this future-oriented, um, greater thing going on. And even in the book of Revelation 21, like the very end passage we see is God says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And so the kind of like the thing that the rest of the story has been pointing towards is happening. The dwelling place of God is with man. And so this theme of creation moving on purpose towards new creation has everything to do with the reunification of God's presence, his blessed presence mm. with his creation. Mm. Amen. Yeah, there's a, 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 I know a lot of us, uh, or at least the three of us, I don't know if those folks listening know about the Bible Project, but they do just some incredible mm -hmm. uh, animated videos about books of the Bible as well as theological themes. And one that I think uh, is really helpful that comes to mind, we'll link to it, is uh, their video called Heaven and Earth. And it's really a great picture of how God sees the tabernacle and the temple as this kind of, they use the language of a hot spot of God's presence. That yes, God is everywhere all the time, but if you want to especially dwell in his blessed presence, then you need to come near to the tabernacle and the temple and how, yeah, we have to have our sin atoned because we can't get clean enough. And so anyway, we'll, we'll link to that. Um, what was the question you asked him earlier? When he said two questions, he could only do oh, one. Oh, do, does time. creation and the temple both point to the, the end goal? And so he, he answered so both. He answered it. You did answer Revelation both. 21. Oh, boy. You know, there we go. But I do think it's important that God is not surprised or caught off guard by Adam's sin. Right. That he's the author of the story. And so this is what can be confusing about even when we read, is God sovereign over it? Is he an actor within it? Does he know the future? Does he control the future? That God is both. He's both an author of world history. Yeah. And in that sense, he's surprised by nothing. 
And he presents himself as an actor within history who's emotionally involved and responsive. And so even when God sets up the garden with Adam, there's a sense in which something greater than this is coming. And, you know, in the mind of the author, uh, there's, there's beauty, there's drama. Mm. And, and so God in creating creation, you know, in his mind, he sees the creation of Eden with Adam and he sees the creation of the temple with the priests and he sees the new creation with the church and, and Jesus as the priest, he sees all these things at once and he's going, I'm going to create this beautiful story that has themes and ups and downs and ebbs and flows. Mm. And at the same time, he's present within it. And the ability to hold those two things in tension mm. will help you read the Bible and get less anal about particulars about some of that tension. Mm. It's interesting. Even when I think creation and, and recreation beginning and end, I feel like <laughs> there's a phrase that always pops in my head, adventures and missing the point. Um, and whenever you talk about creation, Christians get all hung up on how long did it take? Was mm. it literal 24 hour days or long period of time? Ed, that's an adventure and missing the point. Not that it's irrelevant, but it's not the main point. The point is this is where God dwells with his people. When you think about the end, the way it's told is, Hey, the end of the story is all about going to heaven. And it's like, no, it isn't. The story is about heaven coming to earth, the presence of God dwelling here. And if we just focus on going to heaven versus on the, the new creation, again, it's an adventure and missing the point. So, uh, Matthew, for you, as you think about that, that idea of God dwelling with us and just the theme of that running through Scripture, um, as, as you've come to that realization through all of your mastering of theology, um, <laughs> what, uh, how's that impacted you? How's that changed your perspective? Yeah, well, I think that's a great question. I think that's the question we need to ask whenever we're studying any type of theology, especially eschatology, is is why does this matter? Um, and sadly, I think it oftentimes doesn't affect a lot of people's lives. Um, and yet I'd say if the gospel is a story that forms us and a story that we find ourselves within, great stories have great endings mm. and they're kind of a consistent arc. Yeah. Um, we were just talking a few moments ago about how, uh, you know, the, the kind of Netflix and Amazon prime content, everybody's trying to put out content and pump out content. We, we end up getting these, these multiple season stories that really don't seem to ever be going anywhere. Yeah. They're kind of designed to not end. Yeah. They're designed to just keep you on this forever cliffhanger. Yeah. And it's fun for a while, but it, it's at some point it becomes wearying and almost disorienting. Yeah. Where you're like, what, where's this headed? How do, Wait, how does this fit? It's not headed anywhere. <laughs> right. And I think that's how a lot of Christians can live their lives like unintentionally disoriented because they don't have a good sense of where's this headed hmm. and and what's it they either have the what i would consider the wrong view of where it's headed or they just don't think about it um well and even personally i remember watching the show lost did you guys ever watch that one that no, was, but i know that people who watched it really felt that i was freaking like, so upset because you're watching it and watching watching it and then it just ends and there's like no and i remember being so mad at the author who's like you made me a sucker for like seven seasons. And then, so you're like mad at yourself or you're going, you didn't know this was going. You just kind of like thought we can manipulate these emotional experiences to keep people hooked and keep selling ads. And you never really wanted to tell a good story. You just wanted to like, and yet when there, and I kept watching. Yeah. <laughs> when there is a great ending, you go, wow, what a beautiful. Yeah. That was satisfying like experience. Right. And yeah. so I think as I've, so to come back to your question of how this has shaped and formed me, as I've understood better, I think the arc of scripture, the story that God's invited us 
all to live in and the, the destination we're all headed toward, I think it's just led me to want to praise and worship him more as the, this incredible author of this amazing story that no human could have possibly ever thought up. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about that, God is someday going to get the hell off of the earth. Um, all the bad one, stuff. One way he's going to do that is by coming, right? His presence is going to, um, in a sense, evict the hell off of earth. I think another misconception we have is we tend to think about sin being really permanent, hmm. but Pim's uh, sin is actually not permanent. It's more of a parasite. And I think that idea is really helpful. So flesh that out for us, Seth. How, do, how is sin parasitic rather than kind of a permanent reality? Yeah, so sin as a parasite is a big theme in the writings of Augustine. This idea that sin is not creative and sin cannot, uh, it doesn't come from nothing, but it's actually, uh, it latches on to the good and like, and uses it and manipulates it and makes it worse. And so all evil is... Uh, actually just corrupted good. Evil is not a thing in of itself. There's actually like uh, this idea of uh, one of the reasons that Augustine wrote about this a lot was he was bought into this kind of like heresy or Greek thought called Manichaeism, which is that there's these eternal poles, kind of like yin and yang of the eternal good, the eternal bad, and they're constantly been at war. Whereas when Augustine becomes a Christian as a young man, he realizes evil has not eternally been at war with the good. That's not how it is. No, there's Mm. always God is good. And that good creation has been corrupted by sin. And so he was trying to really correct a lot of his false doctrine. He was taught as a child growing up in the Greek, uh, uh, Greek Roman or the Roman school system of like the way in which um, people tried to make sense of evil. Well, it's like this eternal battle of good and evil, but he's going, it's actually a parasite. It's a, it's a, it's a perversion. And so if you think about any evil, like take like the most, evil thing like uh thing like sexual assault right that's a yeah that is a perversion of a good thing like sex is a good gift that god gave to people he could have made reproduction uh a totally non-pleasurable exchange but he chose to make it this intimate connecting love creating life exchange uh, of mutual service and 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 self-giving but sexual assault is taking a good thing taking two good things. Yeah, so one good thing is sex. The other good thing is power, that God gives people the ability to affect their circumstance. He called humanity to subdue and have dominion, that Adam and Eve together are supposed to cultivate, and they're supposed to exercise power in order to improve. Yeah, to continue good. And yeah, to, to continue good. They're kind of acting in God's image. Yeah, but like sexual assault is taking two very good things of power and sex, and rather than using power to promote the good, it's using power to serve the self and take and sex is divorced from the act of love and it becomes an act of lust and a taking rather than a giving. And so I think for even like some of our listeners, sexual assault might be the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to them or someone close to them. And I want to be recognized that that's way more common than people who have been sexual assaulted are aware of generally speaking. But that's something that like Satan is uncreative. He can't make up stuff. He can only corrupt stuff that exists. And so just like a parasite just kind of latches on and, and takes mm. without creating anything new in and of itself. And so this idea of like sin is parasite, it's, it's kind of like there's a parasite that needs to be torn out or removed or a, a deprivation or the corruption needs to be undone. Yeah. So sin is a parasite. It doesn't have any creative power in itself. And in a sense, that's good because that means it can go away, right? If, if sin is this eternal thing, if it's this eternal battle between good and evil, there's no real hope. 
So the hope is that God will get rid of sin, that he'll pull it out somehow, that he'll you know get rid of it. So Seth, how does he do that? How does God get rid of this parasite of sin? Well, this is part of the point in which I think the Reformed tradition answers this question in a healthier and maybe different way than some other Christian traditions do. And that's not to say that Reformed traditions write all the time, but I do think that on this point, it is a more faithful biblical looking at it. So uh, there's a lot of different things. A lot of folks, I think, because of popular mass media, have a view of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back to get rid of evil, and it's mostly shaped by the Left Behind series. So whether you're Christian or non-Christian, you've probably heard of Left Behind, the Nick Cage movie, which is like the most popular one, which I never saw. But growing up, we, I remember reading these books, the Left Behind books, and Left Behind was a big deal, especially before Y2K. There's like the, is this the thing where we all get raptured and this kind of secret, invisible snatching away of the church was going to precede this kind of seven year period of war, hell, evil, destruction before Jesus came back and set up his kingdom. And so I remember all the time as a kid having these nightmares that I got left behind. Oh, wow. You know, thinking like I'm in my house, my parents aren't here. Wow. Did I get left behind? And did Jesus come back and I missed the boat because my faith wasn't strong enough or something like that? Or, Mm. you know, and like this kind of, oh my gosh. And so, but that kind of picture really comes from um, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 15 through 17. I'll just kind of read that and talk through uh, what, how God's going to get rid of this parasite. So uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, um, By a word from the Lord that we are alive until the coming of the Lord will not precede those. For the Lord himself will descend, this is verse 16, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so this picture of, on kind of a plain reading, Jesus comes back, we get caught up with him in the air, the rapture, and that's kind of how we get the hell off earth. <laughs> we get out of here. Right. And then Jesus cleans stuff up while we're not here, then we come back and reign and rule. And um, looking at this this text, it's really tempting to kind of see that as an otherworldly escape from the pain. Let's get the hell out of here. This is bad, you know, uh, being here wouldn't be fun. But so sure. there's a couple of metaphors in here that I think are really important to understand. One, this idea of trumpets sounding. Uh, trumpets, especially in the first century when Paul's writing this, understand that trumpets were played when the king was coming. And so what happened is uh, you'd hear the king coming, you'd play trumpets, you'd go out of the city walls, out of the city gate to greet the king and then usher him back into the city. Mm-hmm. When the king comes, you don't go out to greet him and then go back with him. You go out to greet him and then welcome him into the city. And so mm-hmm. the trumpet sounding is this royal event. And even in other places, talking about the trumpets will play, the trumpets will play. That's that's a customary way to greet a king in the first century. Well, and, and just at a practical level, it's a loud way, <laughs> right? So a lot of the kind of common idea of, of the rapture would be, secret. oh, this thing happened, but no one quite could figure out what happened. And it Jesus returned, but it was a secret returning. And this it, doesn't sound very secret. Yeah, this it sounds, sounds like, like the opposite of secret. Yeah. So like everyone so, knows. Here he comes. Welcome him in. And the way that happens in the movie is like everyone wakes up with like, where everybody go? <laughs> and I'm like, well, clearly those trumpets are bad trumpets. <laughs> you would imagine They're like, like dog whistles. <laughs> they blow yeah, real loud. Yeah. You just can't hear them. Yeah. So the this caught up with him or this going out to greet him and welcome him back. It was this is this is metaphorical language about welcoming the king into the city. And so 
this is the church acknowledging um, Jesus coming back. Trumpets sound. There's this big, uh, noiseous event, and there's this excitement of welcoming him back in. And so um, this this excited to see the Lord and bring him back in. And even the, the language of in the clouds with the air is another metaphor. So in uh, Ugaritic mythology, so we're going way back to... Matthew, uh, I don't remember... I don't remember any Ugaritic that was uh, stuff in our master. In the missional master. That must be in the more expensive That's program. the divinity <laughs> masters. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It must have been in the divine the So the Baal, the, the false god. Heard of him. He, yeah. So Baal is an Ugaritic god. Baal would ride on the clouds and would, that was like his way he got around. He was that, like, he, the clouds are his chariot was kind of the deal. And so in Jewish writings, one of the polemics or the arguments against the false god Baal, uh, like we see this in Psalm 104, is that Yahweh makes the clouds his chariot. Kind of thinking like, you think your god rides clouds? He doesn't. Our god rides clouds. And so yeah. it's not being literal, but it's being purposefully offensive, saying your gods are false gods. And so even in Daniel's prophetic vision, uh, Daniel 7, we see that Jesus, or the Son of Man, is coming back with the clouds. And so picking up on that metaphor... Yeah, uh, this is the one true God. Yeah, he's, he's the one true he's God. He's coming. And he's coming. And he's coming on the clouds. It's kind of like, a, how does God get around while well, apparently on the clouds? And so this is, again, mostly offensive argumentation. And then so uh, Paul writing this, we'll come with him in the clouds, meaning like he's coming back and we're going to be with him yeah. as he comes back. So we're participating in his overthrowing of false gods. Hmm. We, are, we are joining in with his reign and his rule. And it's another way of saying... The bail thing is false. So this is not really describing how we, you know, get off earth, get the hell off of earth. This is describing how Jesus begins to get the hell, the sin, the evil, the parasite off of the earth yeah. so that it can be made new so that we can be with him uh, in this good, you know, recreated earth rather than in some kind of esoteric heavenly place. Yeah, it's Jesus' people rise from the dead and we greet the Lord. And it's this is everything to do with heaven coming to earth, not with us getting the hell off earth. Yeah. And so the presence of God comes and expunges what's going on here. And so the que next question is, how does he expunge it? How does it get out of here? And so this is one of the more uh, important phrases that we see in the New Testament, speaking about the way that Jesus comes back and how he gets the hell off of earth. Uh, one of the languages we see a ton is that uh, it will be like the days of Noah. We see that in Matthew mm -hmm. 24, 17. It's like, so it's talking about there'll be two people in a field, but then the Lord will return and will be like the days of Noah. And so, okay, to rightly understand Matthew 24, this is called the, uh, when Jesus comes back, we need to understand what were the days of Noah like. And so, well, the days of Noah were there was sin and abundance on the earth. And what ends up happening is God provides a safe passage for his people who remain on the earth while he washes away all the evil with water. Mm. And so God then promises, I will not destroy the earth with water again. And so we see that language in the Genesis account that God destroys the earth with water. And by that, again, destruction is more about a cleansing, a, a wiping away, a, uh, a destruction of the sin off the earth. And he preserves his people on the earth while wiping evil away. So it will be like the days of Noah except for this time God already promised he's not going to do it with water, so he generally promises that he'll do it with fire. And so this destruction of the earth, we see this in the book of Second Peter when it talks about 
And we kind of picture like this Death Star moment <laughs> where this laser comes and the planet explodes. God's going to destroy the earth when he comes back. But if we think about it's actually like the days of Noah, not like the days of Return of the Jedi <laughs> or whenever one the right. planets get destroyed. <laughs> not totally sure. Uh, you're asking the wrong person. Yeah, again, this is an example of just like the Left Behind movies, the Star Wars movies affect the way we read scripture, oh, unfortunately. Yeah. Sure. In a, in, that's not just Star Wars movies, but pop media and stuff. We can't read the scripture without being who we've been and where we've been. So we're always bringing our stuff to the, the Bible. But this be like the days of Noah, he's going to destroy the earth again, just kind of like with the days of Noah. And so there's this wiping away, a burning away, and it has everything to do with just like fool, like gold is purified through fire. The earth will be baptized in fire and evil will be taken away in a really meaningful way. And this gets back to the Matthew 24 text where it says in Matthew 24, 40, two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Or so. So, so in that one, I think I want to be left behind. Yep. Right? I want to I don't want to be like the people that got swept away in the flood. I want to be like Noah who was left behind. Yeah. And so this this is actually if you read the Greek translation of Genesis 6, let me find the Greek real quick in Genesis 6. Genesis 6:8, the so the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, literally says Noah was left behind. So that makes the whole Left Behind series kind of confusing because it <laughs> <Sure. laughs> turns out Noah was the one left behind. And so if, if it'll be like the days of Noah and God's people are left behind, what ends up meaning is God's people will be the ones who are left behind. You want to be left behind. And that actually is in line with a lot of like the threats that we see of God against evil in a variety of texts. I'll just read a couple of them. So Zephaniah uh, 3 uh, verse 11, it says, I will remove from your midst, from your midst, the proud and exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in the holy mountain, but I'll leave in your midst the people who are humble and lowly. So Zephaniah 3, the, the proud ones are removed, and the left behind ones are humble and lowly. Psalm 52, why do you boast of evil, almighty man? You love evil more than good, and you love lying more than speaking what's right. God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. So that's Psalm 52. Jesus picks up this teaching uh, in Matthew 13. Just as weeds are gathered and then burned with fire, so will be at the end of age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. So just like weeds are pulled out, you know, the wheat and the chaff, the chaff is pulled out, and it's taken away. And so the theme and the thrust of the prophetic parts of the Old Testament and of Jesus talking in this. We see this in John 15 as well, that um, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Mm. He throws away. They gather them and they're burned with fire. And so this fire, again, is, I, I think, metaphorical. And uh, an old te- A New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright was asked uh, by a room of skeptics, is this fire metaphorical or literal? And he said, oh, it's certainly metaphorical. And the whole room was like, whew. <laughs> And then he said, but it's metaphorical for something much worse. Yeah. Which was the holy purifying presence of God, which to those who are not covered in the blood of Jesus is terrifying. Yeah, this really, I mean, this is sobering because um, mm-hmm. it's always ironic. I mean, Matthew, I'm sure you and I both, we, you know, read Noah's Ark stories to our kids and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 
Seth, I don't know if Jay has a little Noah's Ark puzzle or anything like that. But Not it's, yet, if you need gift ideas. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, oh, here's this cute kid's story and two by two of every animal. And, and yet, you know, it wasn't, I mean, they had to be literally watching certain people drown, watching certain people's bodies be crushed against rocks as the waters overflowed. I mean, it's unbelievable judgment against sin. And it says there in Genesis 6 6, that God saw that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And so it's just and it's right, but man, that's, that's hard to swallow. And so this is a, I mean, on one hand, this is very comforting for those who are covered in the blood of the Lamb. But this is also really distressing, if we're honest, about thinking, man, there's a lot of people we love who don't know Christ, don't love Jesus, don't treasure him. Um, And maybe there's even some people listening who would go, gosh, what does this mean for me? I don't know where I stand with God. Um, So is this good news or bad news? I think the, the, the overall heart of the scriptures talks about these things as good news that God could have himself gotten the hell away from earth. <laughs> hmm. I don't, these sinful, rebellious people who hate me, who are sinful, who don't, or aren't grateful, who want to go their own way, that God doesn't owe anybody second chances. And he doesn't owe salvation to anybody. He doesn't owe the earth a restoration. But he chooses in his grace to extend favor where it didn't belong. And so this is, Really, I think if we understand the severity of our rebellion against God, then his grace is like captivating. Go, this is good news. He doesn't abandon us. So I've got a question. So if if God's going to purify the earth through fire, does that mean like literally everything I build and plant physically is going to burn up when Jesus returns? Yeah, that's a great question. So Reformed theologians talk about this distinction between restoration and repristination. And repristination would be the view that everything is taken back to the Garden of Eden. So because all that humans have created is ultimately bad, we're going to destroy all of civilization and we're going to basically go back to the Garden. And so that's kind of like, think about it like this. Uh, A guy named Al Walters wrote a book called Creation Regained, which is really, really good. That even if people are kind of new to thinking through things from like a reformed view, that's probably the first book I sent him to. It's pretty pretty short. It's pretty short. It's not easy, but it's brief. And so... If you're willing to do it. And we did have Al Walters as one of our professors. Yeah, and I did not. Did. And you did not? I did not. Yeah. Al, Al rocks the fanny pack. He does. Like a champ. That's what I was going to say. He's an older Canadian man who's just, uh, he's sweet and he's Top tender. Notch. He loves the Lord and, and even though, a great little book. And even though he's Canadian, we listened to him. We wondered for years, what is in that fanny pack? <laughs> What's in there? Yeah. Did you ever find and then out? We, we, did. we did. We had actually kind of a special event for him when he kind of officially retired um, because our main professor was real close with him, and and somebody asked, and he, it was like his wallet, and his it phone, was entirely was, underwhelming. Like every, what else would you put in a fanny pack? Right. He was sort of bewildered that we wondered about it. So we were hoping for like a concealed carry weapon or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, but he's Canadian. That wasn't going to no. happen. Anyway, we di- <laughs> we digress. So, so uh, creation regained would be a great book to read. Yeah. So he he distinguishes between repristination and restoration. I think it's really helpful. So. If you think about it like this, suppose we have uh, like a six-year-old who's diagnosed with cancer and that six-year-old 
battles cancer all the way through the age of 20. So for 14 years, fighting cancer, fighting cancer. In the middle of that time, they go through puberty, they, they develop, they grow. But eventually at the age of 20, they are healed from their cancer. Um, repristination, so describing that healing as a repristination would be making that kid go back to being a six-year-old. So you are undoing the concurrent development. Mm-hmm. So, the, so even though the six-year-old has cancer, there's concurrent development. There is the the cancer is waxing and waning, growing, not growing, but simultaneously, even though there is curse, there is still creationally good development happening. And so, healing from cancer is not go back to before you had cancer. It's remove the current parasite of cancer and withhold or not withhold, but hold on to the ongoing goodness that also happened while you had cancer. And so the 18 year old who, or 20 year old, whatever, however old they said it was. Who can read because they learned how to read while they were found. Who can read, who has a more developed body, who has more, you know, theoretically more emotionally developed. I don't know how many 20 year olds are that emotionally developed, but this possibility, you know, of that. So a lot, it's not like God's going to remove the evil and all of a sudden New York city becomes a garden because mm. we can't have, but all the concurrent good that's developed is maintained. And so this kind of gets into this tension between continuity and discontinuity between the new creation and the current reality is how much of the good will be left. Mm. And because even like Jesus' body in the resurrection, there's continuity and discontinuity. They knew it was him. They recognized his voice, but mm. also. But sometimes could, not right away. But sometimes not right away. They could see him. And so yeah. I think that we can overemphasize the continuity and be like, it'll be basically the same minus the bad guys, you know, right. I think that's probably, and, or it can be overly discontinuous, which is, it's kind of this otherworldly heart playing, hmm. but it's, it will be this creation made new, not repristinated, but restored with all the parasite gone. And so this, this kind of, uh, tension between continuity. Hmm. Discontinuity so that, that actually gone. helps me understand the doctrine of sanctification a little bit better. Cause I've always wondered like, why doesn't God just take us to be with him? Like if the goal is to be more like, Christ and to be with Christ through salvation. Why doesn't he just take us to be with him and take the sin away? And it's what you're saying is there's real work, lasting work, meaningful work that's being done throughout, like throughout our time, mm. even on earth, this side of the Lord's return. Yeah. When one of the places where we probably get caught up a little bit is in trying, especially with all of this, um, imagery, especially in the book of Revelation, of getting too attached to a very wooden literal interpretation of it. Um, Kind of like N.T. Wright said, of this fire is certainly metaphorical, representing something much worse. The good metaphors are also representing something much better. Um, Actually, my mom came to me once and she said, I have this this problem with Revelation 21. Because in verse 1 it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Matthew, you've learned to surf, right? Mm -hmm. You love going to California and being out in the water, right? Like, there's a lot of people who go, whoa, 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 I don't want, like, if there's a a new creation with no sea... No ocean, like that's not good. Well, the sea, and this is what we talked about, That what I talked about with her, the sea is this imagery of chaos and confusion and darkness, and that's really what's happening. It's it's not a, a literal wooden thing, but it's saying like, hey, all the chaos that makes uh, that makes this world bad, that part's going to be gone. Um, but but these the imagery of this new heaven and new earth, it's going to be even better than we can describe. So the stingrays in the sea 
that stung me last year in 2020, the worst year ever, will be gone. But the sea itself, maybe, hopefully. Or maybe be they'll there. be there and they just won't sting you. They just you. won't sting you, yes. Or maybe you'll be smart enough to not go where they are. Right. So I learned. <laughs> or maybe you won't fall off your surfboard so it, much. That's, see, that's the, that's the one right there. So to call myself, myself a surfer would be overly generous, but I can't stand up. I didn't call up. you a surfer. You I said, said I can you, surf. you surf. I can stand up on a surfboard. But I learned if you jump off in shallow water, there's a good chance you land on a stingray and get stung. Ouch. So, so even that, when it comes to like, sometimes we think about the new creation and we remove the concept of development from within that. Hmm. But God created the earth to be developed. Part of the good vision that oh. he gave to Adam and Eve was Creative to subdue mandate. and have dominion to develop culture. And so it's not like when Jesus comes back instantly, Matthew will be good at surfing or better at surfing. <laughs> but there will be a less inhibited ability to develop ourselves and develop creation. And so it will be, it'll be an uninhibited going back to the, the, the lack of curse in the way that things can grow and develop. And so humans will continue to make and build and develop culture. And even as it relates to the continuity of some of these things, one of the verses that uh, we tend to kind of not consider, but when it's talking about um, Revelation 21, 26, it talks about how they, that is God's people, will bring into it that is a new creation, the glory and honor of the nations, that there are these different things that different nations develop that are good, mm. that will remain. And I think we need to be really careful of saying what exactly those things are because we mm. don't know. And obviously, like, our egocentrism and blindness can be like, well, that's a good thing that's staying. And right. And when we had a new creation, we're like, I can't believe I thought that was good. Um, and even the things that we overlook and take for granted that we think won't exist uh, will, will remain. That's good. So I have uh, maybe one last question for you guys based on this that, you know, trying to kind of get this into a place that a lot of us will find ourselves. I know recently uh, the three of us attended a funeral of somebody who was a member here who trusted in Jesus and, uh, and died. How, how does this view, how does this understanding uh, transform or influence maybe a different way that you kind of even experience uh, the death of somebody you care about? I think the big idea is, so there's two, there's two horizons here. There's life after death, which is what happens when you die right now. And there's life after, life after death. Mm -hmm. So there's yeah. this in-between phase between if you die now, in the time between that death and when Jesus comes back, that's life after death. And that is, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's what Jesus says to uh, the person who's being crucified with him, who exercises faith, that Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise there meaning Eden. Mm -hmm. Like, you'll be absent from the body, you'll be present with the Lord, that there is absolutely, those who have died in Christ are with Jesus right now. And that's what typically people mean when we talk about dying and going to heaven. Yeah, which is accurate. To yep. be in the presence of God is to be in heaven, and so you die and go to heaven. But that's not our eternal dwelling place. When Jesus comes back, those who are in heaven will be those who rise first. First Thessalonians 4 talks about that. That you'll be risen. Mm. You'll rise from the dead. That this resurrection-centric understanding, so that's life after life after death. That is our, we will eternally dwell on this earth in this creation. And so attending a funeral, I see, I'm, there's two aspects. There's actually, I'll say three things. One, I'm comforted that they're with the Lord's presence if they're in Christ. Two, um, there's grief that death was not part of God's design of creation. And so I never want to be... It's one of the impacts of that parasite. Yeah, the impacts of the parasite is it chokes off and and death is a result. And so I never want to be overly chipper at weddings. like I Funerals? Funerals. At, yeah, 
funerals. Knowing you, you probably also don't want to be overly <laughs> chipper at weddings. I when do you want to be overly chipper, <laughs> Seth? I have yet to experience this. <laughs> anyway, ca- ca- carry on. I'm regularly chipper. Really? I'm rarely overly chipper. <laughs> <laughs> He's the perfect amount of chip. I would say that I am <laughs> the most emotionally healthy person you've ever seen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Always perfectly in tune at the moment. <laughs> So you don't want to be overly chipper at funerals. Yeah, I do think that there can be a real. tendency to like call it a celebration of life. And we can celebrate their life, but I just never want to do it in a way that makes it seem like their death wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. yeah. But there's also like a, I'm not just going to see them again in like this disembodied heavenly nothing, but I'll see that body resurrected. Mm. And so it gives me a vision for this earth and this life and this creation that's going for now. This place is full of parasites, but that's not going to have the final word. Yeah. What about for you, Matthew? How does this, I mean, a lot of times when you go to a funeral, you're singing at it. Um, yeah. Other times you're just there. How does this change your perspective on death or even just you thinking about your own, your own death someday? Yeah. Um, when I consider like what's bad about death is that there's all these good things that God created us to experience his presence and glory through, um, that we, that stop. Hmm. So, uh, relational unity and love with friends and family is interrupted and, uh, the ability to, I don't know if there'll be food in the intermediate state, but I sure do like food right now. (laughs) Um, you know, there's, there's all these, these things that are good that reflect the goodness of God. Um, and I feel like an understanding that the Lord's going to renew and restore and redeem the creation and resurrect us and we'll live together um, on this earth forever it gives me hope because um, whatever it is that death has, has unwound, mm. God will wind back up mm. and we'll get to enjoy it and yet to a, to a greater degree. And I think the, the thing that I've really been trying to meditate on lately is what makes all those things good is not that, gosh, I'll get to be a glutton in heaven, but that... <laughs> I'll be able to experience the goodness of God's creation in heaven without my sinful tendency to look to those things to be more than they were ever designed to be. So I can actually actually enjoy them to a greater degree Mm. because I'm with the Lord Mm. and he's always going to be the focus and he's always going to be the point. So I can enjoy um, community with my friends and loved ones in the presence of the Lord to his glory. And then it will be truly satisfying that, that like longing inside that never quite gets met, even in the goodness of God's creation will be gone. And that's really exciting. Wow. That's great. One other thought that came to mind was just this. I, I feel like I kind of, I'm not going to say I was taught this, but what I was received, what I received may have been my little ears mishearing was this view that God doesn't care about your body. Mm. He Mm. just cares about your soul. It's like, who cares that their body died or their soul is in a good place? But almost at this, some of this makes funerals more sad because you're like, man, God cared about that body. Mm. God cared about that aspect, that part of creation. Mm. So it's not just God cares about your soul, but he cares about your body. And so there's almost like God cares more. Mm. And it makes me think about in Genesis 9, uh, it says, talks about how God makes an everlasting covenant with every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. Mm. And so God cares and he's invested relationally with every living creature on the earth. And by that, he means like 
you know, these animals don't have souls, which is an argument, a hill I would not die on, but <laughs> almost die on is, uh, he's talking about the, the bot, the created bodies yeah. of, of these things that these creatures are bodies. And so, so that God's in covenant with creation means that I need to care about creation. And I want to, even my weird, anxious dog, <laughs> Herman, you know, who kind of drives me nuts. There's a sense in which like there's an aspect to which the Bible teaches that he's in covenant with this creature. And so he's in covenant with my body. And so there's a relational commitment that he has to creation. And God doesn't break his covenants. He does not. Not at all. And that's actually what we're going to talk about in our next podcast. Yeah. Well, great. Well, we'll leave uh, we'll leave it off there. Matthew, this was fun to have you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Will great you come time. back sometime? I would love to come back. Okay. Based on listener feedback, Ooh. <laughs> that's right. we will invite him back or not. <laughs> oh, boy. I don't Better think that's true. That's not true at all. Yeah. No. No. We're... Uh, We'll have you back. We'll have you back. How about you come back next time? Sounds great. All right. We'll see you then. Thanks Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, We appreciate uh, just the encouragement and the feedback we get on this. If you find it helpful, um, please do share it with someone else that you think would be helped by it. And if you have questions or things that uh, you'd like us to talk about, email Seth Trout at redemptionaz.com. It's actually three T's, one at the beginning, two at the end. Seth Trout at redemptionaz.com. It's actually four T's, one in Seth. <laughs> oh, my Trout. Goodness. That's so true. Many so many T's. Wow. Or you can email Matt Brazelton. No, you can't because that won't go anywhere. <laughs> that is not my name. Do, do people ever try to do that? No, because that's not my name. I'm sure people have emailed Matt Brazelton and not gotten no response and been like, man, he's such a jerk. Be yeah. like, well, wait until you actually call him Matt Brazelton to his face. <laughs> then you'll see what a jerk he is. All right, everybody. It's been real. The King and Culture Podcast. We'll see you next time. <laughs>